0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible reads in verse number 1, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated. As ye know, at Philippi we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now, in this verse number 2, we see right away one of the great themes of the book of First and Second Thessalonians that comes up over and over again and that is the affliction, the tribulation, the persecutions that God's people endure. This is one of the things that comes up over and over again in these books. In verse two there it says, even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, it says. As you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. So three times in this verse, he's emphasizing the opposition. The fighting, the battles, the fact that people are attacking them and treating them shamefully and so forth. This is something that comes up over and over again in these books. Like I said when we were going over chapter 1, these books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, have a lot to do with the end times, Bible prophecy. In fact, every single chapter brings up the second coming of Christ in some way. Uh, Just look at chapter 1, verse 10. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It talks about waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. Look at the last two verses of chapter two. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Look at the last verse of chapter three. To the end ye may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, With all his saints. So, last verse of chapter one, last verses of chapter two, last verse of chapter three. And then, of course, we know there's a huge section in chapter four, a huge section in chapter five that have all to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians is the same way. So, these books are very heavy on Bible prophecy. And isn't it interesting that the books that have a lot to do with Bible prophecy also have a lot of admonitions? about the suffering we're gonna go through, about the affliction we're gonna go through, about the tribulations that we're gonna endure as believers. This is not a coincidence. Because the Bible clearly teaches that before Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, we're gonna go through tribulation. We're gonna go through affliction. We're gonna be persecuted unlike any other generation of believers. So that's why in this book, we have these admonitions about the fact that there are gonna be enemies. There's gonna be opposition. And watch what he gives them as advice here. He says in verse one, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain, but even after that we'd suffered before and were shamefully entreated. As you know at Philippi, we were bold. So what is he saying there? He's saying the fact that they were persecuted did not cause them to back down and water down the message and say, hey, wait a minute, we better be careful. We're being persecuted, we're going to prison here. We need to water down the message a little bit because people just can't handle it. No, it says even after they'd suffered, even after they'd been shamefully entreated, they were still bold. And where does the boldness come from? It says we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. All the contention and fighting did not stop them from preaching the gospel. Now, when it says here, bold in our God, this makes me think of Acts 4.31 when it talks about the disciples being filled with the Holy Ghost. And it says when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled together was shaken. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. According to the Bible, the evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost is the speaking the word of God with boldness. And here we see them bold in their God. The fullness of the Holy Spirit gave them the boldness to keep preaching even when it wasn't popular, even when they're being attacked and persecuted. Look at verse number three, it says, for our exhortation, talking about their preaching, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Now he's saying God has trusted us with the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that unto us was committed the ministry of reconciliation. God has given us a great responsibility, a great task to perform. He's committed unto us the oracles of God. In the Old Testament, he committed unto Israel the oracles of God, Romans chapter 3. And in the New Testament, this ministry of reconciliation, God's word, the gospel, has been committed unto us as believers it's been committed unto us as Gentiles that we're going to preach the gospel of God. So we don't want to betray God's trust here. He's trusting us. Right. Imagine trusting somebody, saying, I'm trusting you to get this job done. And then they just don't show up. Think about that. If you're not preaching the gospel, if you're not a soul winner, if you're not uh, getting out there and talking to the lost and preaching God's word to every creature, then God has trusted you and you're letting him down. He's given you, I mean, if you're saved, you have the gospel. You've been trusted to carry out the mission. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and to give it light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in. Yeah. Don't let God down. He's trusting you. Amen. He's entrusted us with the gospel. Now, he's trusted us, of course, to preach the gospel. But not only that, he's trusting us to preach it right. right. Amen. And the temptation is there to water down the message or to give a sugar-coated version. And Paul's addressing that here. He's saying all this affliction came upon us. We suffered. We were shamefully entreated, but we did not change the message. It says in verse number five, for neither at any time used we flattering words. What are flattering words? Telling people what they want to hear. And you can see how this is a great end times book. Because here we are in the end times and the Bible said the time will come when they will Turn away their ears from the truth. They won't endure sound doctrine. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. And we see that happening. And so he says, We're trying to please God, not man. God is the one who's entrusted us the gospel. We're trying to please God, not man. And he says, We didn't use flattering words at any time. Never. He's saying, We never just. Told people what they wanted to hear. Just preached a positive sermon because we knew they would be popular and that it would fly well. He says, Neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. And you'll notice that the preachers who preach the most flattering words are the ones with that cloak of covetousness also. See, God talks about putting on the cloak of zeal in the Old Testament. You know, we're talking about the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. There's an Old Testament passage in Isaiah about the whole armor of God, and he talks about putting on zeal like a cloak. You know, what we ought to be cloaked with is zeal, where we're excited and we're passionate about preaching the gospel, getting people saved, doing something great for God. But there are those who put on a cloak of covetousness. And they'll say the flattering words, they'll preach what people want to hear. Why? For filthy lucre's sake. The Bible says, preaching things which they ought not, Why? For filthy lucre's sake. There's big money in preaching what people want. Just ask Joel Osteen. I don't think he's having financial problems right now. (laughs) He's doing great financially. Why? Because he's constantly using flattering words and he puts on covetousness like a cloak. And we could go through all these TV preachers and the preachers that the world will lift up just like the world will always lift up false prophets. True prophets of God are always hated of this world. And he says in verse number six, nor of men sought we glory. We weren't trying to get money by preaching what people want to hear, flattering them because of our covetousness. We're not seeking glory of men. We don't want to be lifted up and praised by politicians or on television or just loved of the city council members and governor and the congressmen. You know, he said, no, nor of men sought we glory. Neither of you, nor yet of others. When we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. He's saying being an apostle of Christ is a pretty big position. I mean, that's a pretty high status. We could have thrown our weight around, as it were, and been burdensome, but he said we never did that. Why? Because we're not looking for the glory that comes from man. We're looking for the glory that comes from God. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us, saying, We, you know, we actually cared about people enough to preach the truth to them, not just tell them what they want to hear, for our own popularity and self-aggrandizement. He said, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. The words labor and travail are words that are in the Bible often associated with childbirth, a woman being in travail. Today we use the term a woman being in labor all the time. Why? Because obviously giving birth to a child is hard work, it's painful. And so he's using this strong language about how hard they worked. He's saying, you know, we worked night and day, laboring, travailing. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Why? Because preaching the gospel is really hard work. I remember one time we had a young guy who came and visited our church, and he had never really done a lot of soul winning. But he'd grown up on a farm, and so he was no stranger to hard work. And he did a bunch of days of soul winning with us. And he got up and said, look, I grew up on a farm, and I know what hard work is. But he said... Soul winning is strenuous, hard work. And it doesn't seem like it would be just walking up and down the street, walking up the stairs, talking to people, opening your Bible, showing them how to be saved, preaching the gospel to the lost, door to door. It doesn't seem like it would be hard work, but it really is hard work. Because it's a strain mentally, spiritually. It's like where Jesus felt that virtue had gone out of him. That's how you feel after you go soul winning. You feel drained. And Paul says, we labored, we travailed night and day, you know, preaching unto you the gospel of God. He says, ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. that's a key point that he makes here when he says, when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, God's word, the Bible, is what we're talking about. The, the word of God here in my hand, this book, it's not man's word. It's the word of God. And a lot of people will try to say, oh, the Bible's written by men. Well, who wrote the, you know, I was just talking to somebody a few days ago that was a Hindu, and it's like, well, who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, What in the world? You know, God wrote the Bible. But God did write the Bible. And you say, well, you know, who physically wrote it? That's not relevant. Whenever people ask who physically wrote it down, well, I always say, well, this one was printed by a machine. You know, nobody has handwriting like that. But that's not really the issue, is it? What machine did this come off of? Or whose pen was used? No, the real issue is who the author is. And the author is God. Regardless of who wrote it down. It's sort of like with the book of Romans. We would all consider... The book of Romans to be written by Paul, humanly speaking, that, you know, it's called the epistle of Paul to the Romans. But when you get in chapter 16, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So wait a minute. Tertius wrote? Well, we need to change it, right? The epistle of Tertius to the Romans. No, because the fact that Tertius was physically holding the pen and marking it down really isn't relevant, is it? Because it was Paul who was speaking the words to his secretary, to his scribe, Tertius, who wrote down the words. But even more than that, it was God who gave the words to Paul. So it went from God to Paul to Tertius to you. That was translated into English. And you say, well, you know, it's a copy of a copy. of God." No, no, no. It's God's word. This is what God said. Yeah. Now you say, well, is it another language? Yeah, but here's the thing about God's word. Here's what separates the Bible, from all the other so-called holy books in the world, the Bible is amazing and powerful in every language. It doesn't matter whether the Bible is in English, Spanish, German, Chinese, whatever. It is powerful in all languages. God's Word has the same power. I mean, when you read the Bible in English, when you're reading a King James Bible, you don't think to yourself, oh, this is obviously just a translation from some other language. I mean, it, it reads like it was written originally in English. Why? Because it's so powerful. Amen. It loses nothing. Yeah. And it's the same thing if you're reading it in Spanish, if you're reading in German. See, this is what separates the Bible from the other false scriptures of this world. Because when you look at the Quran, can it be translated into all languages and, and have power? No, because even the most devout Muslim will tell you, hey, it's only good in Arabic. And when you try to talk to them about the English, you know what the Muslims will say? Oh, well, you know, you can't read it in English. You You know, you lose it in English. And then the same thing, you talk to the Hindus. You want to talk about their Hindu scriptures of the Rig Veda, the Upanishads. It's like, no, no, it's got to be in the original Sanskrit, you know, to have its real effect. And then you talk to people about other religions, and they pull that out of Well, it's only good in the original language. You know what? That's what's unique about the Bible because the Bible is God's word and God is not limited to one language. God's word loses nothing when you preach it in Spanish or if you preach it in Chinese or German. It doesn't lose the power. The power is still there. If it's translated properly, which in our English Bible, it is translated right, thank God. So God's word is what the Bible, it's not man's word, it's not written by man, it's not of any the Bible says right. no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Right. So it's not even really accurate to say, well, who wrote the Bible? It's well who spoke the word of God. And the answer is that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Where's the proof that it's that it's really God's word? You know where the proof is? In the pudding. Read the Bible, and every page is filled with power. Amen. Read the Book of Proverbs, and tell me that that is not the greatest wisdom that is on this planet. Yeah, right. Every verse of the Bible is, is powerful. Every chapter, every page of the Bible is an, is just amazing, and so yeah. no other book is like it. And and to even compare these other so-called scriptures of the you know whether it's the Quran, the Book of Mormon you know, and none of it can even hold a candle to the Bible. There's no comparison. And so we need to understand that when we're hearing God's word in the form of the Bible, we shouldn't receive it as the word of men, where we're taking it with a grain of salt. We need to receive it as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in us that believe. And that's the proof of God's Word, the effectual working of God's Word, the power of God's Word, the effect of God's Word. That's how we know that the Bible's true. Not because of some history book or some fossil record or, you know, some uh, scientific argument. No, I know the Bible's true because of the power of God's Word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Bible says in verse 14, for ye, brethren, and for there means because. He's saying the word of God effectually worketh in you that believe. And here's how it works in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So he's saying here that the Thessalonians are following the example of some churches that had been around a little bit longer. They're looking to the churches of Judea, that are in Christ Jesus, as a pattern and an example, since these churches in Thessalonica are a little newer, they're followers of the churches that are in Judea in Christ Jesus, and they have something in common, because the Thessalonians had suffered similar things of their own countrymen as the churches in Judea had suffered from the Jews. The Jews were persecuting the Christians in Judea. The Thessalonians were persecuting Christians in Thessalonica. So it says, For ye, brethren, verse 14, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus. So who killed the Lord Jesus? The Jews. So he's saying, They suffered of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So not only do the Jews not please God, the Bible says the Jews are also contrary to all men. Now, let me ask you this. Does this ring true when we look at the world that we live in, the history of the Jews from this time that the book of First Thessalonians is written until now? Is it true that the Jews have been contrary to all men in the sense that they have really had a beef with many nations under heaven. You know, if you look at the historical record, you know, for example, uh, there was a book that had a list of all of the places that the Jews had been just exiled from, thrown out of, where there was a legal decree that said, we are throwing out all Jews from around 1000 AD until the 20th century. And it was like 47 times an official pronouncement had come from a government that said, we are kicking out all Jews. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? To stop and think about that. And we're not just talking about just one place. Hey, it was this Germany or something? No, it was England. It was Spain, Italy, France, you know, all over the place, all different places that they'd been, where they'd been exiled and thrown out. And you have to ask yourself, you know, why are they? Well, the Bible says here, that they're contrary to all men. Yep. So then it kind of makes sense that you see them in a variety of places all over the world being thrown out. Now, why are they being thrown out? You know, you, you don't throw out people you like, you throw out people that you don't like, okay? So somebody didn't like the Jews for whatever reason. I mean, it, I think anybody would have to agree with that. Even the most pro-Israel, pro-Jewist, you know, foaming at the mouth Zionist would have to admit that the Jews have been persecuted and hated in just about every country that they've lived in throughout history. And the question is, why? If they're such wonderful people. Now, of course, what they're going to tell you is, oh, you know, we're God's chosen people. That's why we're suffering. That's why everybody's against us. Now, Jesus Christ said, you shall be hated of all nations. And then, oh, that's the Jews. But he says, for my name's sake. And you know what name that is? Jesus. So when Jesus said, you'll be hated of all nations, you'll be hated of all men, there's one little part that we need to remember. For my name's sake. So is that talking about the Jews? No way. Because the Jews are not hated for his name because they don't claim the name of Jesus. They reject the name of Jesus. So what makes more sense is to look at this passage which says that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Now, that makes more sense. Yep. That's what the Bible teaches. Yep. Now, you don't hear this verse preached a lot. In fact, you hear very little preaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians anyway, unless it's just the famous rapture passage. But there's all this other teaching that needs to be taken into account. You can't just isolate one scripture and just preach on that all the time. We need to go through every verse of First and 2 Thessalonians. And we're finding all this other information that helps reveal truths about the end times that we're living in. The Bible says here, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So this casts a little bit of light on part of the reason why they're contrary to all men. Now, there are various reasons why, and you say, oh, well, you're you're an anti-Semitic preacher. You know, you're a racist. And they'll try to play that anti-Semitism card which is to accuse you of being racial, which this has nothing to do with race. You see, over the last 2,000 years, everyone has been so mixed and mingled. You know, we knew the Jews left Palestine brown and they came back white. So there must have been some serious mixing going on while they were in Europe for a couple thousand years, the Ashkenazis. But basically during that time, uh, a lot of the people who were of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob converted to Christianity. I mean, over the course of 2,000 years, When they're living in all these countries, they heard the gospel, they heard the gospel over and over again in different generations. And many of them over the years converted to Christianity. And then guess what? They stopped being Jews. Because being Jewish is not uh, an ethnicity, a race. No, it's an ideology. It's a religion. That's why in Esther chapter eight, verse nine, it talks about how many of the people became Jews for the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. If being Jewish was just an ethnicity, just a race, then how could you become a Jew? You can't really change your ethnicity, can you? So when we talk about the Jews today, what we're looking at is people who have chosen a false religion, chosen a wicked antichrist religion, because the Bible says, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He's antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. They've chosen that. So all throughout history... Many of the Jews ended up getting saved, converting to Christianity, and then they just assimilated with the local population because they stopped caring about their genealogy because they got a New Testament that said avoid genealogies. And they assimilated in. So what do we have left today that's a person who's still a Jewish person? Basically somebody who's just been hanging on to their rejection of Jesus Christ for just generations and centuries and people who have just embraced an ideology that is built around the love of money. okay? And you say, well, why are the Jews contrary to all men? Well, because we know that throughout history they've been known for banking. They've been known for charging interest and usury and doing predatory lending. That's one of the reasons why they've been contrary to all men. And then the other reason is that they've been hateful toward Christianity, which is right here in this passage where it says that they persecuted the prophets. They persecuted us, meaning Christians. They killed Jesus. And then it also says that they're forbidding us as Christians to speak to the Gentiles, verse 16, that they might be saved. To fill up their sins all way, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But if you go to your typical prophecy conference today, you go to your typical church where they're preaching on end times prophecy, you know what they're going to tell you? Oh, the Jews are under God's blessing. Look how God's blessing them over there in Israel. And God brought them back to the land. And and God's got a special blessing on them. And when they go to battle against their enemies, God's right there fighting with them and protecting them. Is that what the Bible teaches about people who reject Jesus and persecute the prophets? Is that what it says? That they are under God's blessing. No, it says the opposite. It says the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all because the Bible says, he that believeth on the Son, well, they believe God the Father. No, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. See, anyone who doesn't believe on Jesus Christ has God's wrath abiding on them. But not everybody has God's wrath abiding upon them to the uttermost. This is a more extreme wrath of God, right? This isn't just your typical wrath of God because you're not saved. Oh, no. The Bible says the wrath of God is come upon them to the uttermost. Now, there's a passage that's really similar to this over in Matthew 23. Flip over to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, the thing that right away... Stands out in 1 Thessalonians 2 is where it says to fill up their sins always. That kind of reminds you of something that you may have read over in Matthew 23 that's worded in a very similar way, and it's talking to the same group of people, the Pharisees. You see, today's Judaism, today's rabbinic Judaism, is the religion of the Pharisees. They will even tell you that. If you talk to those who practice Judaism today, they will tell you that they are practicing the religion of the Pharisees. And in fact, there's a famous Pharisee in the Bible named Gamaliel. And he was the one who taught the Apostle Paul back before Paul got saved, back when his name was Saul of Tarsus. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is one of the authors of the Talmud. And he is considered one of their great thinkers of Judaism, you know, who who laid out a lot of what's in the Talmud, and he's a Pharisee, and they'll they'll flat out tell you that rabbinic Judaism is the religion of the Pharisees. Well, what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? I mean, he preached pretty hard against the Pharisees. He called them a lot of names and so forth, but look what the Bible says in Matthew 23, verse 13. It says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them, that are entering to go in. Suffer there means allow. He's saying you don't go in yourself and you don't allow other people to go in. Now, isn't that exactly what it said over in 1 Thessalonians 2 when it said that they're forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And what are they doing here? Neither are they themselves entering into heaven, but he says they're also shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men and not allowing other people, trying to hinder other people from being saved. Now, that sounds pretty satanic to me. I mean, it's one thing not to get saved, but then it's another thing to actively try to stop people from getting saved, to actively fight against the gospel of Jesus Christ and try to hinder it. That's a pretty scary thing. That's why he says, woe unto you, meaning God's going to deal with you harshly. Now, I don't have time to go through all the different woe unto you's in Matthew 23, because he just rips and rips and rips throughout this whole passage. But let's just jump forward to verse number 29, where it says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witness unto yourselves that you're the children of them which killed the prophets. Now look at the next phrase. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Isn't that kind of similar to what he said over in 1 Thessalonians 2? That they are filling up their sins all way for the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Here he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Now, if somebody preached like this today, they'd be accused of being an anti Semite, wouldn't they? You're anti Semitic. Now, look, this has nothing to do with race. When Jesus says, You're the children of those who killed the prophets. You know what he's saying? You're the same kind of people. Mm -hmm. You're following in their footsteps spiritually. It's not about race. It's not written in their DNA to just have this instinct. I just want to go kill me some prophets because it's in my blood. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying you are the children of those who killed the prophets. You're following their footsteps. That's why when they claimed Abraham's our father, he said, if Abraham were your father, you would do the works of Abraham. See, they're not of Abraham. They might physically be of Abraham. Emphasis on the word might. But he says here, you're the children of those who killed the prophets. It's not about, you know what, I'll prove it to you that this isn't about race. And this whole race card, you know, like, oh, you're against Obama? You must hate black people. Even though Obama's white. But you know, they'll say, hey, you know, you must hate black people. It's just a, a decoy to get you off the real issue which is the predatory money lending, or to get you off the real issue, which is the blasphemy and hatred of Jesus. They want to get you off the religion and just get you on race to try to just cloud the issue and shut up any opposition because nobody wants to be known as a racist. So then everybody just keeps quiet about preaching against this awful religion of Judaism. And you know, people have no problem preaching against Islam and they should preach against Islam. Preach against Catholicism preach against Hinduism, preach against Buddhism. But you know, what? we also need to preach against Judaism. But today we've been Judaized. Most of our churches today call themselves Judeo-Christian and they start talking about Yahshua and Yahweh and Hachflam and Shalom and Shabbat and all this stuff. And they go through all this Hebrew and Jewish ritual, even to the point where they'll even call their leaders sometimes rabbis, even though they claim to be following Christ. Well, look at the Bible. You're in chapter 23. Look at verse 8. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all your brethren. So here Jesus specifically says, don't be called rabbi. So when somebody is so Judaized to the point where they're calling people rabbi, they're not even following Jesus anymore. Right. Now they're just following Judaism. And listen, there are people who are actually Jews who pretend to be Christians, and they're actually Jews and they're not really Christians. It's real, it's true. You, you think John Hagee is really a believer in Jesus Christ? No, no. no, that's why he sits there and says, hey, the Jews don't need Jesus. He says the Jews are going to heaven without Jesus. Wow. Wow. See, he's following the false religion of Judaism. Yep. He's a crypto-Jew that basically hides what he really believes and hides what he really is. And don't try to make this about some ethnicity. There's no ethnic difference between the Jews and everybody else in this world. You know, you look at these blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jews, there's nothing ethnically different from them and anybody else from Poland or anybody else from Sweden, for crying out loud. We're all of one blood anyway, according to the Bible. The Bible says God's made all nations of one blood. But just to prove to you that it has nothing to do with ethnicity, look down at your Bible. Look at the next verse after he says in verse 32, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Watch this. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Watch this, verse 35 that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now you say, well, Pastor Anderson, you're being a little hard on Judaism. Coming down a little hard on the rabbis. You're preaching pretty hard against the Jews tonight, Pastor Anderson, what's your problem? Look, I could never preach as hard as Jesus did. Look, do you, you don't hear me trying to blame the death of Abel on the Jews. That's what Jesus said. Yeah. I mean, Jesus preached so hard against the Jews. He said, hey, you're responsible for the death of Abel. Yeah. <laughs> you say, well, how is that possible? That's what he said. Look at it. Does everybody see this? That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. He's blaming them for all of it. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the ark. And let me ask you, was Cain Jewish? No, (laughs) because there's no such thing as being Jewish. The word Jew is never even used until 2 Kings chapter 16. This is something a lot of people fail to grasp that the word Jew is never used until 2 Kings chapter 16. And the reason it's used so late is because it's used after the split between the northern and southern kingdoms. So it's the southern kingdom of Judah where the people became known as Jews. Not the tribe of Judah, but the southern kingdom of Judah, which included a few different tribes. But the northern kingdom of Israel, they were not known as Jews. In fact, if you look up the first time the word Jew is ever mentioned, Israel is fighting against the Jews. So they're obviously not the same there because the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And it talks about Israel and Syria teamed up fighting the Jews. Look it up. Second Kings 16. That's what it's about. But obviously we know that Cain was not Jewish. Cain was not a Hebrew. Hebrews are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is way before that. You say, well, then how in the world can Jesus blame the death of Abel on the Jews? It doesn't make any sense. But here's why. It's the same reason why he's saying you're the children of the ones who killed the prophets and you're not the children of Abraham. Because this has nothing to do with an ethnicity. That's what I'm trying to get across to you tonight. It's not about ethnicity. You know what it's about? It's about who their spiritual father is and their spiritual father is Cain. He said, think not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. God doesn't care what nationality you are. Red, yellow, black, white, it's not important to him. What matters is, who are you a spiritual descendant of? Because the Bible says, they which are of faith, they are the children of Abraham. Yep. See, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a child of Abraham tonight. And you'll, you don't let these people get you thinking, That, you know, going to some wall somewhere and going like this. and You know, that makes you a child of Abraham. You know, Abraham never did this in his whole life. Never. He never did that once. Say, how do you know? I just know. There's no way he did that. Because that isn't normal, that's why. That's not taught in the Bible. So this whole... Funny hat and everything that they do, you know, that's not what makes them a child of Abraham. And yet Christians all over America, Baptists all over America, are saying, hey, the Jews are God's chosen people. Hey, no, the elect are those who believe on Jesus Christ. Read the New Testament. Oh, but let me show you in the Old Testament. Get in the New Testament. The Old Testament has been replaced with the New Testament. And so the problem is that people today are so hung up on ethnicity. And then it's ridiculous. Then when you show people the New Testament teaching, hey, the Jews are not really God's chosen people. You know, it's us as believers. Then they'll come up with some stupid theory about how white people are the real Jews. I mean, have you heard this theory? Oh, you know, the real Jews went to England, the Anglo-Saxons, and so white people. So then they just, instead of being like a Jew supremacist, then they become a white supremacist. And then another group will say, no, 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 no. The real Jews went down to Africa. and it's those that are black. And it's where you have the black Hebrew Israelites. We're the chosen people. And you white people are Edomites or Kenites or whatever they try to call you. (laughs) So you got got white people saying, we're the chosen race. You got black people saying, we're the chosen race. You got the Jews saying, we're the chosen people. No, it's people who believe in Christ and ethnicity means nothing. We're all of one blood. But people are so brainwashed, like they can't get past that. They can't get through that. So they see this where Jesus is blaming the Jews on the death. He's blaming the death of Abel on the Jews. And they're just looking at it like this doesn't make any sense. But you know what? It makes perfect sense when you get off race and get off ethnicity and just realize that we're talking about a spiritual lineage here of false, wicked religion. And Cain was of a wicked religion because if you think about it, Cain brought an offering unto the Lord other than that which God asked for. He was supposed to bring of the lamb, of the blood of the lamb, the fat of the flock. But instead, what did he bring? Fruits and vegetables. So he brought of his own works, his own produce, and he brought something that he had fashioned from his own understanding instead of what God had told him to do. And they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, all false prophets in second Peter two, when we are warned of false prophets, it says, woe unto them for they've gone in the way of Cain. So Cain is the poster child for bad prophets. And then it says that they ran ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and are perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So God says, here's the spiritual lineage, Cain, Balaam, Korah, and then the false prophets of today. And when Jesus looked at the Pharisees, the Jews, the rabbinic Jews, he said to them, you are filling up the measure of your fathers. You are true unto your fathers by basically, you know, killing Jesus himself. He said, your fathers killed the prophets. Your spiritual father Cain, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, killed Abel. And he says that upon you, verse 35, may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. I like that because not only does it go chronologically from Abel to Zacharias, it's like from A to Z. You know, all, you killed all the prophets from Abel to Zacharias, you know, if you were to put them in alphabetical order. I thought that was funny. So it says that it would all come upon you whom ye slew. He said, well, we didn't do it. Yeah, but you're the same type of people who did it. You're the spiritual sons and daughters of those who did it. And in a few days here, you're going to be screaming, crucify him and killing the son of God himself. He says, verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not you didn't want to he says behold your house is left unto you desolate for I say unto you ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say blessed is he that cometh in the name of the lord let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 so we saw a great parallel there between 1 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 23 some of the same language was used about filling up their sins all way, the wrath of God coming upon them. In the uttermost. You can see the wrath of Jesus in Matthew 23. You can tell he's mad. He's calling them serpents, vipers, woe unto you, you're hypocrites. Uh, I'm going to blame you for the bloodshed upon the earth, all the way from Abel to Zechariah. I mean, you can see the wrath in Jesus. And we see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the way, the reason that this is so important to Bible prophecy is that When you try to look at the book of Revelation, people try to tell you, oh, the tribulation, that's all about the Jews. Because they still think the Jews, you know, the so-called physical Jews, are God's chosen people. And then you try to show them Matthew 24 and say, look, Matthew 24 is teaching us about end times prophecy. Oh, no, 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 that's talking to the Jews. No, Matthew 23 is talking to the Jews. Matthew 24 hes talking to believers in Christ. And so, because people get this issue wrong about the Jews, they get all of Bible prophecy wrong. Mm -hmm. This is the number one mistake people make when studying Bible prophecy. This is why people believe in the pre trib rapture. It's the only reason. Because they take the clear verse that says that the rapture is after the tribulation in Matthew 24 and just say, oh, it's to the Jews. Oh, the elect, that's the Jews. No, the elect are not not the Jews because they're not chosen, they're under God's wrath, Mm -hmm. they're going to be destroyed. The Bible says, you say, well, you hate Jews. No, I don't. I don't hate Jews because you know what? Jews are unsaved people just like anybody else, and I love them and want to see them saved. But you know how you're going to get them saved? By telling them the truth, not lying to them and saying, you are the chosen people. You are going to heaven no matter what. You don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. The one who really hates Jews is John Hagee. Because every Jew he comes into contact with, he gives them a false assurance of, oh, you're already saved. You don't even need Jesus, the devil that he is. Now, listen, I don't hate any Jew who just unknowingly is just following this religion and is deceived by it. Now, you can can see the hatred that Jesus had toward the ringleaders of it, the Pharisees, where he's telling them, look, you blasphemed the Holy Ghost. You have no salvation in this world, neither in the world to come. You have no forgiveness in this world, neither in the world to come. Where he's telling them, look, they could not believe because God blinded their eyes and he tells them, you're done. Okay, but here's the thing. I've run into a lot of Jewish people who were actually receptive to the gospel. Now, 99% of them are not receptive to the gospel. But sometimes you'll run into one that is receptive. And you know what? I wanted that person to get saved just as much as I would want anybody else to get saved. You know, we love the lost and want to get them saved. Many people are in the category of, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, but, but truth is hate to those who hate the truth. And so when you start preaching hard truth, like Jesus preached some hard truths in Matthew 23, if anybody preached like Jesus today, they call him a hate preacher and they call him a racist, even though what he said had nothing to do with race, okay? But that's just what people say. So look down at your Bible there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Now, I love these verses. These are some of my favorite verses because Paul here is talking about how even though he was separated from the Thessalonians physically, he's saying his heart was still with them. And he'd been really trying to get there to see them, but Satan had hindered him. But I love what he says when he says, for what is our joy or hope or, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? What are we going to be joyful about when we're in the presence of Jesus Christ? What's our hope? What's our joy? And listen to this. What is our crown of rejoicing? You know, we often talk about the rewards that believers will earn on this earth by serving the Lord. Because Jesus said, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And we think of the crowns, we think of the rewards, and we think about the 24 elders up in heaven in Revelation who cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and say, you know, thou art worthy, O Lord, and they throw down their crowns before him. Crowns are associated with rewards. The Bible talks about how the faithful pastors in in 1 Peter 5 would receive a crown for their service. But Paul says, what is our hope? What are we hoping for? What is our joy? What's going to give us joy at the second coming of Christ? What is our crown of rejoicing? And he says, it's you. Now, why does he say that? It's you. Why is he saying to the church of Thessalonica, you are our glory and joy? Because of the fact that these are people that that he had won to Christ. These are people that... He and and Silvanus and Timotheus had labored among them. Remember earlier? He said, we preached unto you the gospel of God. We labored. Even after we suffer, we kept preaching. The word of God came unto you with great power. He says, you are our glory and joy. You're our crown of rejoicing. Why? Because when we get to heaven, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ one day, there's going to be great rejoicing with the people that God used us to reach with the gospel. Think about that. That's an important thought. I mean, imagine getting to heaven and being in the presence of Jesus Christ and then being surrounded by people who would say, you know what, I'm here because you preach the gospel. Thank you. And obviously Jesus gets all the praise and all the glory, but you know what? It's going to be great to rejoice with the people who got us saved, Right? and the people that we got saved. I mean, it's rejoicing. And then the Bible also talks about in John chapter 4, the fact that, you know, one person obviously sows and another person waters. God gives the increase. That's dealt with in other scriptures. But in John 4, he says, other men have labored. You know, other people have gone and planted seeds. You've entered into their labors. And the Bible teaches that one day, he that sowed the seed and he that watered the seed are going to rejoice together. So one day when we get to heaven there are gonna be people that we gave the gospel to that didn't get saved, but we planted that seed. And that seed germinated within them. And then later, somebody else came and watered that seed. And then that person got saved eventually. Obviously, God gave the increase. But let's say, for example, you know, I gave somebody the gospel, and then later, Brother Dominique went by and gave that same person the gospel, we're gonna get to heaven and be like, bam, we did, you know, because it was a team effort. We both accomplished something as a team. And then think about how exciting it's going to be just to see the people in heaven that were won to Christ through our efforts. I mean, that's going to be great. That's going to be huge. But you know what? There's going to be some people that get there and it's like... (laughs) Because they did no soul winning. Okay, did I say there's going to be some people like that? Okay, the vast majority of Christians could not say what Paul's saying right here. I mean, the vast majority of Christians have never won anybody to Christ. So they, they're not even planting the seed. They're not even watering the seed. So they would get there and, and, and miss out on that great joy, miss out on that crown of rejoicing, miss out on that great reunion where you get together with all your co-laborers in the gospel, all the people that you worked with and soul winning, and, and see the successes. Because, you know, it's, it's sad when you give the gospel to somebody and they don't get saved. It's sad, Right. But it's going to be great to get to heaven and find out that some of those people got saved later. People that you thought didn't get saved, and then it turns out that later they did get saved. You're like, yes, thank you, Lord. It's going to be so exciting for those who are part of the team. And that should encourage you and admonish you to be a part of the team. You say, what's the team? The team is called the local church. The local church is the team, and the game is soul winning. And God's keeping the score. And if we go out and work hard, and the Bible says, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And that's what it's going to be one day in heaven. Bringing the sheaves with us, rejoicing in the souls that have been saved. Now, a lot of people, they'll get real uncomfortable when you preach like this and say, you know, how dare you talk about people that you got saved? You prideful, arrogant. But here's the thing. They're not part of the team. So that's why they feel left out. So they're jealous. So then they start talking smack about those who are on the team, who are getting something done, who are making something happen. Because they're this guy. Zero the hero. (laughs) So because they're not doing the works for God. Oh, how dare you talk about. Well, how dare Paul say I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. How dare Paul say in Romans eleven fourteen, 14, if by any means I might provoke to emulation them that are of my flesh and might save some of them. How dare Jude say of some have compassion, making a difference and others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. We all know Jesus is the savior and ultimately without him, we can do nothing. It's the word of God that saves. It's the gospel that saves. That's the power of God unto salvation. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us, but isn't it great to be a part of the process? And you know what? If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. So you know what? People are going to be thankful that somebody came and gave them the gospel. And if you win somebody to Christ, they're going to thank you for it. I know I'm thankful to those who gave the gospel unto me. I know that you're thankful to those who gave the gospel unto you. It's going to be a rejoicing time, but there are going to be some people who miss out on it because they're the end of their spiritual family line because they got the gospel and they hid it under a bushel for their whole life. And they're gonna miss out on the rewards. But you know, if you're a part of the team, if you're, if you're out there in the trenches, if you're on the front lines, preaching the gospel, winning the lost, this is something that you have to look forward to. And I, I know I'm looking forward to that day of, of reunion, of rejoicing. Of course, we wanna see Jesus. That's the greatest part about it. But you know what? We also want to see our co-laborers, and we also want to see our spiritual sons and daughters that have been saved as a result of the word that we preached, and it's going to be an exciting time. And it's something that man, woman, boy, and girl can participate in. Every, anybody can open a Bible and show somebody how to be saved. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this great chapter, Lord, and for the implications that it has for the end times, Lord. We we are living in the last days. And so we need to be hanging on every word about uh, tribulation, second coming, uh, scriptures about persecution, Lord. These things are upon us. Help us to be strengthened in the inward man and help us to keep the faith, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for watching Chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, produced and distributed by Framing the World. Framingtheworld.com offers a whole variety of books and DVDs just like this. Stay tuned, Chapter 3 coming up next.